Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this week, Chris... We've got something slightly special, so I'm going to let you follow up on this. Yeah, well, it's it's both different and special. We are very, very pleased to have a guest, Dr. Waitman Bourne, on with us tonight. We'll introduce him properly in a second. But normally what we do is we skip through our guest bio and we sort of say, oh, well, they've done one or two things. But given the nature of the topic that we hear us talk about in a second, I thought it was really important, actually, we gave Waitman his full bio. So you really get a sense of his expertise and depth of knowledge. So forgive me if at the beginning we're a bit more formal than we might normally be with our guests. Don't worry, we'll go back to our usual casualness later. But Dr. Waitman Bourne is an assistant professor in history at Northumbria University in Newcastle upon Tyne, United Kingdom. Before coming to the UK, he was the director of the Virginia Holocaust Museum in Richmond, obviously in the United States and the inaugural Blumpkin Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. He has written two books, in fact, technically three, we'll come on to the third, I think, Marching into Darkness, The Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus, as well as The Holocaust in Eastern Europe, The Epicenter of the Final Solution. And he's recently finished a book on the Janowska, I think I pronounced that correctly, concentration camp outside of Lviv. As you can tell, Waitman's expertise, amongst other things, um, is obviously around the genocide and the Holocaust. But we'll, we'll tell you a bit more about some of the things as well. The reason why we're particularly lucky to have him on the podcast is because, as well as the books he's written, he's been published in a number of academic publications, uh, has been awarded the National Endowment for Humanities, Fulbright Foundation, Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, Claims Conference Fellowship. And he's also been published in Washington Post, appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and just for good measure, somehow managed to find time to be in Australia at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I came across Waitman as part of his sort of public history engagement on Twitter, and also as part of, you've heard us talk about before, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, another podcast. You can tell I really wanted to make the point where we're going to be talking about genocide and some really serious topics today. We're not talking to someone who you've met down the pub that once read an article about a thing. This is someone who has studied this, and I'm sure Waitman will talk about it later. But this is the longest intro as well we've ever done. If that wasn't enough, he was also a US cavalryman, and he has, by the way, that to go with it, which I have seen him wear on a number of occasions. Um, And after attending West Point, he commissioned in the 1st Squadron of the United States 10th Cavalry Regiment and deployed to Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, was commander in Abrams' main battle tank, and also then a Bradley fighting vehicle as part of the operation. So, you know, what drew me to Waitman, and when I collared him and said, would you come and, and talk to us, was that he has this academic knowledge in history, but as this podcast is all about comparing and contrasting military, that was really good. So after the longest intro perhaps you have had for a long time, Waitman, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm super happy to be here. Two reasons why I really wanted to have this conversation. The first, and as we've said in the past, this is our podcast, so we can kind of talk about what we want. The Holocaust is one of those topics that I think 
I feel reasonably personally, we should not forget and not talk about. And I think as time marches on, it's easy for it to slip away to be that thing that happened in history that doesn't have any relevance, even though you can start to see some eerie echoes today in the news about some things that are happening. So for me, Waitman's research and some of the conversations I had when we first met really helped to bring it to life for me. And I, I wanted to give Waitman that opportunity to tell that story about his research. But the second reason, given where we are as a podcast, it is fundamentally around the idea of why do people do bad things, or in this case, appalling things. And that as a topic, and this is where I get very careful how I talk about this. Normally, in these conversations, when we have guests, myself and Gareth are always leaping in and making direct connections about you know, how this affects my day-to-day software management team or, you know, things that you've done. And I think to connect directly genocide and Holocaust to things that happen in teams and businesses, I will leave the audience and sort of the listeners to draw those connections. I don't want to belabor that point, but I do want to make the point that was something that was interesting to me, how some of this relates and I know certainly one of the things we might do later on is talk about how this affects military ethics. I, I, I agree with you completely. I think there's there's a real danger of being quite insensitive. But I, I am particularly interested in the lessons that we can learn. Wait, and this is obviously for you to uh, to answer. But for me, it's, it's interesting that if you look at the atrocities of the Holocaust, you can't argue that the, these were isolated, you know, bad incidents as a result of bad individuals. You also can't argue that this was bad groups that have gone wrong because of a particular situation they find themselves in. This was definitely a, a systemic problem that was right across the Wehrmacht and wider German society. But that's really hard to sort of put together with this idea that, you know, therefore every single German must have been morally abhorrent and evil. Because, of course, an entire society can't be evil. They have to get there and they have to, something must have happened to to create the conditions for that. I think whilst it's potentially very dangerous to draw analogies between what happened in the Holocaust and, and bad things that happen on a much smaller scale, I do think there are absolutely lessons we can explore in how systems go wrong. And, and I suspect... As we get into it, we'll start to unpick a lot of the things we were talking about in the last episode, where we were talking about the the difficulty of dissent and sort of challenging bad behaviours, as well as some of the sort of psychology around group dynamics. Even starting with the word Holocaust, right, we have a bit of ambiguity there, right? And depending on how narrowly or broadly one wants to define it, there are, there are those who, who sort of define the Holocaust as essentially the Nazi program of oppression and ultimately physical extermination of the Jews. The uh, sort of the most narrow definition is the Shoah, which actually is that. Um, I use the term in my work, the Nazi genocidal project, because actually what the what the Nazis do is, is a series of genocides against a variety of different groups of which the Jews are the most prominent. They occupy the most space in sort of the Nazi worldview as as an enemy. And they are the the victim group that the Nazis are 
and I'm using air quotes here, are most successful because they devote the most sort of resources to that. However, the Nazis also target other groups and many of them in ways that I think it's fair to consider genocide. The the, Ro- the Sintian Roma, pejoratively called gypsies, is a category of people that qualitatively for certain um, have the same experience uh, that Jews do in terms of the ways in which they're uh, identified, rounded up, and murdered. The first people that the Germans, the Nazis kill are Germans who are handicapped or physically or mentally disabled. The Nazis kill around 60,000 of their own people. And again, here you have a great, I think, connection to what Gareth was talking about in terms of institutional cultures. In this case, you have the medical profession, which signs up by and large for things that I think most of us would consider, and and most people at the time, or at least outside Nazi Germany at the time, would consider to be um, directly antithetical to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm and and protecting your patients, as they are deeply involved in, in that killing program. And that killing program, by way, by the way, to kind of paint a little bit of a picture, uh, so it begins officially on September first, nineteen thirty nine, because Hitler backdates a policy um, authorizing the medical profession to relieve individuals who are sort of unworthy of life in the Nazi conception. But there's also an economic aspect to this that they they are viewed as a drag on the economy and a waste of money. And this is this is the so-called T4 program uh, of extermination for the mentally and physically handicapped, including children. Many of them are actually gassed in several institutions in Germany. Then there's actually an outcry led predominantly by the Catholic Church. And so Hitler, at least officially, ends the program. What really happens is the program becomes decentralized and carries on by use of lethal injections and starvation in lots of different facilities in Germany, rather than having the the victims transported to central killing areas. But as we move forward to the Holocaust, what this means is there's a particular set of people with a particular set of skills that they have learned in the T4 program and euthanasia program, things like how to gas individuals, how to cover that up, how to transport people to central locations, how to dispose of bodies. And this group of people become the foundational element for the Nazi extermination program of the Jews, the so-called final solution in the Reinhardt camps. And these are literally, these people literally staff those facilities. The staff at the at the extermination centers is overwhelmingly made up of people who had experience in the so-called euthanasia uh, killing program in Nazi Germany and were sort of out of a job following the, its its official closure. So to to I'm trying I'm, I'm trying to to sort of summarize the Holocaust here briefly, which is which is terrible for a historian to have to do. Arguably, the, the Holocaust begins if we're talking about the final solution portion of it. If we're talking about the systematic and legalized persecution of Jews, of course, that begins already in 1933 in Germany. But if we're talking about the, the the Holocaust as the killing portion, it begins in the summer of 1941 with the so-called Einsatzgruppen, who are these mobile killing squads led by the SS, but staffed by a variety of different uh, individuals from policemen to Waffen-SS to uh, Sischer-Heidstein's security service. Um, and these, these killing squads go into the Soviet Union and they begin to murder at first communist functionaries, leaders uh, of, in the Soviet Union, and communist leaders, and Jewish men of military age. And then very shortly after this, they begin also killing all Jews, regardless of age or gender. That is one of the indications that the final solution has begun, because we don't have 
a written order by Hitler that says, now we're going to start killing Jews. And arguably, one of the reasons we don't have that order is that he had been scared by the fact that he had put his name to paper on the euthanasia program. And so he was careful no longer to put his name on paper as being responsible for these things. But we do know that this was in the in the works because there is a memorandum from Goering to Heydrich, Heydrich being Himmler's deputy in the SS, written by Heydrich and signed by Goering, which essentially directed Goering in July of 1941 to make all the necessary preparations for the final solution of the Jewish question in Europe, which is simply euphemism for what will become known as the Holocaust and extermination elements. And so then sometime in the in the summer fall of 1941, as evidenced by several things, one of which is the change in the demographics that are being killed in terms of Jews, uh, but also orders are going out to uh, construct what will become the Operation Reinhard camps, which are the uh, extermination centers of Belzich, Trip, Sobibor, and Treblinka. These dedicated, very small places whose sole purpose in life is to murder Jews on an industrial scale. But somewhere around you know one and a half to two million Jews are shot to death in this Holocaust by bullets most of them before any gas chambers open. The first uh, extermination center to open is Kelmno, which opens in December of 1941. And it uses actually mobile gas vans rather than a gas chamber to murder Jews. Uh, then we have the facilities at Belzich, Sobibor, and Treblinka open up, and they are using carbon monoxide gas from stationary engines, tank engines, submarine engines, and Auschwitz as well begins its its role as a as a major killing center gassing Jews upon arrival. And that obviously that continues, you know, up until the end of the war. So that's sort of the the Holocaust and the Shoah element. Um, but we also have several other ones beyond the, the I've mentioned the Roma already. Uh, one of the areas that doesn't get mentioned a lot is the Soviet prisoners of war. The, the Germans and predominantly the German army are responsible for the deaths of between two and three million Soviet prisoners of war. The majority of those are, are, die in the first eight months of the war. And this is not a case of insufficient logistics, the inability to feed these large numbers. This is an intentional plan. And just to give you a sense of the perspective there, uh, that number is eight times the number of American combat casualties in both theaters in the over the entire course of the war. Somewhere around 450 to 500,000, right, is the American combat casualties. More Soviet prisoners of war are dying every day in the in the fall of 1941 than Allied prisoners of war die in the entire war. The percentage of Soviet prisoners of war that die in German hands is around 57%. To give you a comparison, Allied prisoners of war in the Pacific, who certainly had no great, wonderful, comfortable time, that was around 27 to 29%. So just a huge, huge loss of life. And one of the things that I think is important to highlight as we talk about the Holocaust is how lots of these things overlap. We talk about sometimes intersectionality as it relates to sort of prejudice and, and discrimination, but you also have sort of a, an intersectionality of the Holocaust where Jewish prisoners of war are separated out from their comrades, both in Poland and in, in the Soviet Union, and are murdered because they're Jewish. Disabled prisoners of war are also removed and murdered. Sometimes prisoners of war are forced to dig the graves that Jews will be shot in, Right? So there are all these ways in which in which these things interact. And then the last thing that I'll mention as sort of an introduction, because I think what I'd like to do in this introduction is at least perhaps expose your listeners to areas they may not be as familiar with, um, other than sort of Auschwitz and, and gas chambers. The Germans also had a plan 
that they that they admitted in writing would have resulted in the, the deaths of between 30 and 40 million civilians in Eastern Europe. These are the so-called hunger plans and the, the, the green and brown plans. And essentially, because the Nazis are looking at the invasion of Eastern Europe as a colonial endeavor, i.e. they are planning to annex and settle that territory with Germans, and oftentimes to replace the local population ultimately with Germans, they view Eastern Europe, particularly the Soviet Union, solely in an extractive nature, right? So they look at the Soviet Union and they divide it into two zones, north and south, south being the food surplus zone and north being the food uh, deficit zone, because the southern areas of the Soviet Union, what is now Ukraine and other places, that's where the, the wheat and the grain is grown that feeds the Soviet Union. You can't really grow as much food in the north. So often the food will be shipped from the south to the north. And that's and the Nazis, first off, were planning, number one, to supply the German army with food looted from the occupied territories. Next, they would feed German civilians at home. Whatever was left over, they would feed only the, the local non-German population that was working or had some kind of economic value for the Germans. Otherwise, they were they were going to starve. And, you know, the, the, the Nazis planned to starve out, you know, entire cities. And this plan, you know, doesn't come to fruition, ultimately, because the Nazis simply don't have that level of control for a longer period of time. But in, in places like Kiev and other cities, there are lots of people who are starving to death because the Germans are refusing to give them food and are intentionally starving them out. So, you know, and, and had so had the Nazis sort of won the war, we might see the Holocaust, the Shoah, the murder of the Jews as a as a smaller component of a massive, a massive sort of set of genocides that the Nazis are presiding over, which, to be clear, is, is not in any way to minimize the Nazi extermination program against the Jews. Right. Because I don't get involved in this suffering Olympics. You know, every if you're if you're murdered or starved, you're equally dead. Um, and it's not really valuable to sort of to make sort of value judgments. But just to give you a sense that the Nazi state is ultimately a, a genocidal one because of the way it views the world in terms of races, in terms of, of ethnic groups and their and their sort of intrinsic value. I will stop there in terms of an introduction to the Holocaust, but that sort of gives a, a sweeping global overview of the ways in which the Nazis carried out genocide on the continent. Thank you. And I think that's really useful because often we get that very narrow view of gas chambers and things. But the thing that strikes me, you talked about that, was this was not a small number of people saying we will do bad things at scale. What you have described is comprehensive and institutional. I guess one of the questions for me, which, which ties into sort of some of these other topics is, how much did people know about this? Were, were there 10 people in a shadowy room who came up with these plans? Or was that actually, was this something that many, many people knew either parts or all of because they were told you need to design new gas chambers for us or you need to make more trains? This is a really, really good question. And I was actually, I was actually at a conference Last weekend, we had we had this conversation. One of the things that I will do that will be really annoying as an historian is to always complicate the question, right? So you sort of have to separate these into sort of concentric circles. 
in terms of what what did they know what did what did and again what did the ordinary person know is is always a, a difficult generalization to make i think it's fair to say that unless you were fanatically obtuse to what was going on in the sense that you literally like plugged your ears and never talked to anybody you had a pretty good idea as a german ordinary german citizen that something bad was happening to the jews and that they are disappearing the extent to which you might know how they're disappearing is a bit up for discussion, I suppose. But if you consider that there are 17 million Germans that serve in the military, they are writing lots of letters, but they're also coming home on leave. And I would suggest that if you spend any large amount of time on the Eastern Front, it would be very difficult for you not to be exposed to some aspect of Nazi anti-Jewish policy and its crimes against other other groups. And we know sort of anecdotally that, you know, people have conversations around the kitchen table. And, and oftentimes they they do mention things they have seen that if you had any ability to sort of put two and two together, it would be pretty clear that the Jews are being at a bare minimum killed in, in large numbers, if not uh, exposed to genocide. Of course, it's difficult as an historian. I don't want to I don't want to overly generalize here because those kinds of interactions don't really leave a historical record. So it's it's difficult to sort of track those conversations, but we know they took place. If we broaden the ring a little bit more to people who aren't necessarily, you know, a grocery store owner, but somebody involved in the Nazi state, then I think your your chances of not really knowing what's going on decrease even further. Because if you think about for every deportation of German Jews to Auschwitz, somebody has to book the train. Somebody has to figure out what are we doing with their personal effects. Someone has to arrange for the police to march them to the train station. Those people in the in the in the train company in the Deutsche Bahn, Reichsbahn, they know that they're sending trains full of people which are coming back empty. And and that's just people in the Reich itself. And that's one small example. Did people know for certain that there was a 60 square acre place called Treblinka in eastern Poland where people are being gassed in gas chambers? I wouldn't suggest that everybody knew that. Would I suggest that many people had a pretty strong inkling that the Jews were leaving Germany never to return and that bad things were happening to them? I think that's a, a fairer assessment to make. Is there any evidence of people talking about it or even stopping it? You, you mentioned with the euthanasia that the Catholic Church said, you should stop this, which you would hope that the Catholic Church would do. Is there any evidence of someone saying, actually, this is wrong, we should stop this, or I'm uncomfortable? The interesting thing about the the the, the dissent against the euthanasia program is that in some ways the, the Nazis brought it on themselves by their own incompetence. After they murdered someone, they would come up with a fake reason for their natural death, and you know, then they would process it as such. So you had examples where, say, your aunt dies and they would say oh she she had she died of appendicitis but she had her appendix up 10 years before um, and so people started wonder well what is she dying of sometimes people got two sets of ashes sent to them because the ashes are not in any case of the actual person that just they scoop a bunch out put them in a in a tin and send it and it, again like it became a it's a it was difficult to keep that secret in germany i think it's in some ways germans were confronted more directly with that and and I think there's a there's a larger number of people with a direct personal interest in it because it's their family member or whatnot. That approach of going to the effort of creating a false reason for a death would, would indicate that at that time, the German state felt like they had something to hide from 
the wider German population, which would indicate they a they knew that the German population probably wouldn't accept it, and and b somewhere institutionally, and they they also know what they're doing is is not acceptable. By the time it gets to industrialization of that, has the German psyche as a whole changed such that they feel they don't need to hide it anymore? Or it, has the German acceptable. is it acceptable? Or do they does the German state feel like they've got so much control it doesn't matter? What because for me, I, I'm really interested in sort of how institutions have ethical drift and this idea that things that start out well end very, very badly. And I think you can scale that down and we could learn lessons from that. You can look at things like you know, the, there's a it's a cliched example, but the challenger disaster in the 80s lots of people have reviewed that and looked at how nasa's safety culture went through a period of ethical drift so people accepted over time that missing out some of the safety checks or rushing things was just the accepted norm and it it became a case where people either felt they couldn't do anything about it because it's a systematic thing and this is just how it is or it's so imperceptible, the change, that they don't even notice it's happening. Now, I'm not sure how much you can apply that analogy to something as horrific as this, because there must be a moment where you... But there's a... I mean, it seems to me, you, you, the euthanasia thing, I I hadn't understood. Yeah. There has to be a beginning where there is a state that says, we don't murder people. And then there's a point where you get to sort of the end point, and it is that drift. Wayman, where do you see that as a as a thing? Because we just see this big horror and genocide, but it must have there must have been a beginning. There must have been the point when the first person said, "Let's do this," to the point where everyone said, "Well, does it matter anymore?" Well, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think one of the things that's important to highlight for for sort of your your ordinary listener um, is that the Nazis, for all that they were absolutely an authoritarian dictatorship with you know the ability to 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 rule over life and death they were always still quite interested in what ordinary people thought and so one of the sources that that scholars can use are these things called the stimmungsberichte which are you know essentially um i think the, i think the, the the uk had them as well but basically it's like agents of the state who go out in bars and places and listen to what people are saying and then they write they write reports on the on the mood you know what are people thinking about our policies you know, and not not necessarily because the Nazis were going to drastically alter their policies, but there is a an incremental sort of progression that you can see where the Nazi state is, you know, enacting ever increasing extreme measures and then seeing what people what people think about it and what they do about it. And without getting into the whole history of the euthanasia program, of course, eugenics as an idea has a much longer history that predates the Nazis anyway. You know, so they're not they're not building this out of whole cloth. There are entire think tanks in the US funded by the Rockefellers, for example, that are advocating for forced sterilizations and, you know, eugenics against people that they deem sort of racially or, or biologically inferior. So the Nazis if you're talking about sort of, you know, where do they, where does this moment tip? Well, they they're building on something that that already has a certain amount of acceptance in that period of time anyway. What's interesting when you look at this idea of right and wrong as it pertains to the final solution or, or any of these other Nazi policies that I've mentioned, 
is there is a sense, I think, amongst some of the, the, the senior leadership of the Nazis that it's not necessarily that what they're doing is wrong. It's that ordinary people with their conventional morality won't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, even though we're doing it in their inter- in their interest and for them. And you can see this at every level from individual shooters on the Eastern Front and the Einsatzgruppen to Himmler himself. Himmler gives a very famous speech uh, in 1943 in Poznan to a bunch of senior SS people where he essentially says, you all know what it was like to stand you know, in a field of 100 or 1,000 bodies in a way that the people back home in Germany who say, oh, well, but this guy's a good Jew, don't know. Like, you've been there. You've done that. You know why we're doing what we're doing. And he says, this is the greatest chapter in our history that will never be written. And so what you see in a lot of these individuals from the sort of direct killers to the, I suppose, the managers of it, people like Himmler, there's this there's this weird reverse victimization. You know, we the killers are actually the victims because we have to put up with this. We have to deal with the trauma of murdering people uh, because we're, you know, we're good Germans. We are the the people of Goethe and Schiller and Mozart. And, you know, we are very sensitive and kind individuals generally. So it's very difficult for us to do these things, but we have to do these things because what's best for the Reich, right? And so it's not the people that we're killing who are suffering. It's the killers that are suffering. And and you can see this again. I mean, like, you know, even at the lowest levels, people say stuff like this, you know, it's very diff- and there's a recognition by Himmler that these operations, if I'm talking about the the Einsatzgruppe and mass shootings in the East, they are psychologically destructive operations for the people that are involved in them. Because one of the things, and I think you've already mentioned it, Gareth, from the outset, you know, is look, the Germans in, in the 1940s and the Nazis themselves, the vast majority of them are not psychologically abnormal people right they're not they're not mentally ill they're not sociopaths they are psychologically normal human beings and so they have in many ways psychologically normal reactions to things that they are doing so that even if they truly truly believe in their heart of hearts that killing these people is what they should be doing it doesn't mean that they don't have visceral reactions to the very physical elements of the killing, like people getting spattered with brains and blood and all kind of stuff that happens in these mass shootings, which is one of the reasons for the move to these extermination centers, because it's a way of distancing the killers from the act of killing themselves. So if I if I circle back to the question about did they know what they were doing was wrong, I think certainly they realize that the rest of the world thinks that what they're doing is wrong, because there's all kinds of comments of we better win this war because if we don't win this war, you know, we're going to be in for it because of what we've done. Many of the of the people involved in the process ultimately thought what they were doing was necessary, even if it might have been a necessary evil. And then, and I think we'll probably talk about this as well later, there are just lots of people who just didn't have an opinion in the sense of they, or or their, their opinion was it, it doesn't matter that much. You know, they're not invested in it. We need to take a short break now. We'll be right back. This is such a difficult topic not to generalise, but 
the way you've described it is a nation sliding towards doing appalling things and there being a self-supporting justification and natural human behavior. I, I always worry that as I grew up, people would talk about the Holocaust and they'd say, well, of course, it could never happen here because somehow we are special or different. And I, as, as I continue through life, I think there but for the grace of God went we, which is these are not people you would point at and say these are all these hundred thousand, these two million people yeah. are killers. And yet they're behaving that way. So I, I'd love I'd love for you to talk about so I refused to do it and therefore was was taken out and shot because that's what you would expect. Yeah. So I think it might help if we move from the realm of the general, maybe to something a bit more specific in order to have conversation. So we, we can talk about, for example, the role of the German army in the Holocaust or even the police battalions that are you know, routinely carrying out these mass shootings, because there are people in, in these units who refuse. In the, the, the classic example in the book written by my advisor, Chris Browning, Ordinary Men, before the first shooting, the battalion commander says, look, we're going to have to do this. Anybody who wants to step out can step out and doesn't have to do it. And one guy steps out and, you know, his commander gets really upset because it, it's embarrassing. He's like, oh, my guy's the guy that steps out and says he, he can't do this. But the commander actually admonishes him and says, no, no, really, anybody that wants to step out can, can step out. And they do, uh, you know, a, a significant number do. And also, you know, in, in my experience, in, in, the, in the, my first book, uh, which you mentioned, Chris, which is about, about the German army's participation in the Holocaust, but looking at it at the lowest level, at the, at the unit level, you also had this. People, if they wanted to, if they chose, could find a way to not be involved, whether it's sort of the starkest of, I don't, I'm not going to shoot, or whether it was, well, I'll, I'll be happy to do something else, or as something that I'm sure Gareth has experienced in the military as well. You know, there's always, there's always that soldier who, like, when there's hard work to be done, somehow manages to not be around, you know, like that. For some reason they're they're gone. Like who where they where they go? Like they're they're here a second ago. There are those soldiers in, in the German army who 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 manage to do that when it comes to killings. And so one of the things that you find, and this gets to, I think, a series of, of questions that you're asking. You know, one is sort of what is the 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 theoretical ideological motivations and the ways in which organizations become complicit. And then Chris, I think you're also mentioning sort of what are the psychological sort of group dynamics that can often in some ways be separate from ideology in which people become complicit. And, and this is where you see some of this at, at some of these lower levels where people find ways out of it and dynamics and processes develop that then become habit. And this is something that we talked about at the festival, Chris, you know, that in these units, in these killing units, particularly in the Wehrmacht units, that rapidly developed a group of people that everybody knew were the ones that were okay with killing. So when there was a killing of Jews to be taken place, second squad, we'll get second squad to do it. Because we know that they're the ones that they're okay with it, or their leadership is okay with it. And that has sort of several pernicious impacts, because the one one of them is that, of course, there's a, a group of ready killers all the time. But the other is that it absolves everybody else in the unit from ever being confronted anymore with the challenge of do you or do you not participate? Because you know that if it has to happen, they're going to do it. And no one's going to single you out and say, are you going to do it? And one of the ways you see this, I think sort of at a group psychological level, and then I'll, and then I'll be quiet, is that there's a very powerful need 
I would argue in all organizations, um, but certainly the military, to belong to the group. And so those individuals that are refusing to participate in, in, in the examples that I've researched always couch their refusal to participation as a form of weakness. I couldn't do it. I couldn't shoot because I'm a family man. I don't have the stomach for it, blah, 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 blah. Even when we have good reason to believe that they might have been actually refusing out of a moral objection. But this is actually makes a lot of sense because what it does is it allows that person at the end of the day to rejoin the group. Because you can say, look, Waitman, he's a nice guy. You know, it's too bad he doesn't have the stomach for like what has to be done, but it's okay. However, and what and what's interesting, by the way, is that even in the 60s or 70s, when these guys are being interviewed by the police about crimes that they've witnessed or that their unit participated in, they'll still make that. That'll still be the argument that they make. You know, the argument that, you know, we might want to make or in like the, the cinematic universe of this that you would make, which is, you know, you are all bastards for doing this. This is morally repugnant and this is the wrong thing to do and you shouldn't do it. Of course, the problem is in reality, if you do that, those are that's a bell that cannot be unrung. Now you've attacked and called out your fellow soldiers, many of whom may actually agree with you in the sense of they are ashamed of what they've done, perhaps, and that you've reminded them of that. Then you're not sort of back in the group anymore. And when you're in you know, the forests of Belarus, which to a Wehrmacht soldier are equivalent to sort of Vietnam, you know, they, they are terrifying sort of places. The only people that you have as sort of a group is your is your unit. So I mean that's that's one that's one microcosm of these decisions. There are all other people, you know, in other elements of the system that find other ways. You know, there are people, there are guards at Auschwitz who request transfer someplace else. There are individuals with particular knowledge of what's taking place in the gas chambers who try to get that knowledge to others. So you know, I think it's important to sort of look at these instances specifically rather than trying to generalize. I think the power of saying something as appalling as mass murder and genocide, group dynamics allow that to happen, if not encourage it. And so yeah. if it can happen for something so terrible, imagine if in an organization you have something where nobody dies, probably most of the time it's okay you can entirely see why people don't stop things. This is the, in some ways, the most disturbing thing that came out of my first book when and doing the research for it is that, and I'm not the first person to say this, you know, but it's terrifying how much I don't want to be called a pussy can drive me to do horrible things. And and essentially, pardon the language, but that's that's what it was. It was, I didn't want to be seen as weak by my fellow soldiers so I shot naked pregnant women and children. I mean, it, it it's horrifying, really. And it's in some sense, I think it's far more horrifying than when you have a fanatical Nazi exactly. who's a diehard believer. It, it's really interesting. When when we started talking about doing this episode, I was a little bit nervous that we were going to struggle to synchronize it with, with everything else we cover on, on the podcast. For me, what's really interesting is if if you take everything we've talked about on previous episodes we've talked about all of the things that led up to creating the conditions for this. So we've talked about how you form teams where individuals feel very strongly part of the team. 
and how you create those conditions. We've talked about how you create a single vision for uh, what you're trying to achieve, despite not having a very specific plan on how to get there. You set that idea, the tone, the vision on why it's important. We've talked about leadership, followership. We've talked about all of these things. And it, it strikes me that yeah, all of the things that make really, really high-performing teams do really good things to achieve big goals are also all of the things that allow organisations to do really bad things and achieve, just choosing my words very, very carefully here, to achieve awesome scale for horrific and abhorrent ends. And I was I was introduced to this analogy by one of my lecturers when I was at Staff College, which was, we, we did a lecture on ethical failures in the military. And he talked about, it's a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Hart. He, he was a brilliant man. And he talked about how it's the coming together, it's the compounding of systemic failures, situational failures and individual failures. And he talked about that in, in the analogy of you have bad apples, people that do bad things for bad reasons. You have bad barrels, collective groups of people in a situation that engenders them to do bad things. And then you have bad coopers, the system that is building these bad situations. And it strikes me that everything you've talked about, Waitman, is it's either systemic things that are happening, history, like there's a huge amount of anger and resentment of the of the Jewish idea based on this completely mythical made-up pack of lies, but is used to justify the hatred and the anger to blame the Jews for suffering that has happened previously. And obviously everything that Germany went through during and then in the aftermath of the First World War. So you've got that sort of, that leads to the utilitarian kind of idea of this is a horrible thing, but we're doing it for the greater good. It's the outcome is worth doing it for. So like that allows you then to have the cognitive dissonance to say, I'm not going to even investigate or think about what's happening elsewhere or what all this, what all these puzzle pieces mean, because ultimately it's not, in my interest to do so or or ultimately to to be part of it and then to be able to step away and and still feel like you weren't evil and there's there's lots of stories of people getting on with their lives post-war and it's something I'd, I'd like to explore actually with you how does a nation recover from this one of the things we we also have to sort of recognize is, is the normalization of violence as a result of the history of the first world war most of the adult men of a certain age will have been part of a a horrific amount of violence that was very much normalised. And then that is continuing during this situation. So as you said, Raymond, people are you know, on the front line witnessing violence and therefore that gives them a, a feeling of superiority that they understand the situation more than people who perhaps haven't seen that. And I think these compounding issues are how organisations and in this case, an entire nation state drifts into what is the, the most abhorrent and, and horrific crime probably in the, the history of humanity. Yeah, I so, mean, I, I think there's several things that I'll, that I'll respond to. I think that you, you raise a lot of really good points and, and there's lots of different things I'm going to throw out there that we can come back to what, what you want to hear, what you want to hear about. But, you know, one of the things that, that as I was listening to you, I, I was thinking, you know, is, is it, that leadership works in all directions. 
Mm. Right. Even if you're, you can be a, an effective leader for an evil purpose. One of the Einsatzgruppen commanders was notorious because he would always be the first guy to jump into the ditch and shoot people. So he's leading by example, right? And this, this is what you want, right? You want your leaders to be up there leading by example. And if it's, if we're going to be cold and wet marching, you know, in the war, then the lieutenant should also be cold and wet, you know, and this kind of stuff. So, and you, you were right. I could see you sort of trying to, trying to wrap your head around the, what success looks like when you're trying to murder people. Right. But I mean, if you sort of think of this as like a photo negative of a, of a, of a positive a goal, the people can be effective in leading in a negative, in a negative direction. Right. And, and one of the things that, that, that I always say as well is that no one ever commits genocide for a bad reason. Every genocide that's ever been committed, the people doing it think that they're doing it for the, the benefit of their people. And it, it's making, it's good. And it's, it's ultimately going to, it's ultimately the right thing to do. This idea of, of leadership and of creating an institutional culture it can, it can go in both directions, but the dynamics are the same. People do what leaders value. And there's a great example of that comes out of Serbia. In Serbia, in the occupation, there was a there was a sort of nascent partisan movement. And so the, the Germans would have a, had a very strict reprisal policy. You know, if you kill a German soldier, we're going to kill X number of you. And the number eventually went to 100 to 1 was the ratio. And there were two commanders. And this is this is published. There are two commanders, and one of them generally didn't go to the 100. You know, he rarely killed that many. Another one did. Went he, Every time he went all the way to the 1 to 100, that guy gets promoted. The other guy gets shipped someplace else, right? So, you know, the institution, the institution rewards the behaviors that it deems proper, even if it's not publishing guidelines that say you have to do this, right? There are There are sort of non-explicit ways of, of doing that and and then a couple of things you, you brought up and I'll, I'll just cover them really quickly and then I'll, I'm gonna I'm interested to hear your questions you know one one is the World War one generation is important but in some ways it's the it's the generation that comes of age just after World War one right because that's the Hydrics and the Himmlers not the Goerings right and so there are there there's a whole generation of young German men who didn't get to fight in World War one and are, are sort of spoiling to do what their parents did or do what that generation did. Um, and many of them demographically sort of form this group of sort of highly, you know, motivated um, individuals. And then, you know, the, the, the last piece of the history is that institutionally, the German military, and this is the argument of a, a scholar named Isabel Hull, who wrote a book called Absolute Destruction, where she argues that you know, all the way from the time of Frederick the Great, the German military has been conditioned to excess. Why this goes all the way back to Frederick the Great is, is that you have Germany's position geostrategically in Europe has always been one sort of in the middle, right? Usually between two great powers. It doesn't have a massive population. It doesn't have massive resources. So every war the Germans fight, they need to knock out their enemies very quickly. Right. So they're always searching for this decisive battle that will win the war quickly before they sort of run out of, of resources. And this leads to a sort of totalizing mentality. We have to have this one battle that's gonna that's gonna end it, right? It's an all or nothing thing. And and you and you see this all the way through in Namibia in 1907, which leads to a genocide there against the Herero and the Nama people. 
But even in World War One, you know, the, the Germans murder around 6,000 Belgian and French civilians because they believe that they are part of this partisan war when they're not. It's a to- it's a it's a it's a, um, a pathological fear of any kind of civilian resistance, you know, they might encounter. Right. And so this 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 continues as sort of a vein uh, in terms of how the Germans want to see their rear areas, how they deal with civilians militarily, you know, which which also then contributes to uh, to creating that that ground, right, to plowing the ground whether or not what grows there is is more sort of temporally tied to the time itself but it the ground itself is is ready for for increased criminality and increasedly excessive behavior yeah it's interesting when you you talked about the you know, I, I really like the negative photograph analogy as well because i think that that summed up what i was trying to say without being insensitive to the situation and i, I think that was a, a brilliant analogy but when you you talked about the the leadership aspect when you said earlier waitman about being a soldier and therefore i would recognize people you know when there's hard work to be done or sort of they're never around and they always find an excuse not to do it and i had a visceral reaction to that because it, it made me think about all the people i've served with over the years who've been a bit like that and and i i you felt a little bit angry and it, it was just a natural instinctive reaction but it shows even now as a former soldier how how strong these bonds are and, and these conventions and these behaviors and so when you apply leadership in a combat situation you're getting people to do things and we've talked about this a lot and we've used it as an example of how to motivate people in non-combat situations you're getting people to do things who really wouldn't want to do that in any other situation well this is exactly the same yeah and that i think for me is a really scary thing that well, i'd th- probably not consider th- to th- any this, depth i think to some degree this th- this goes back to the point of this conversation which is i think it's easy to be one-dimensional and say bad people did bad things for these five reasons and therefore we don't have to worry about this yes this, this isn't us this could never be us mm. and it has no relevance to my day-to-day life but actually what we're saying is, oh, look, there's these very awkward and uncomfortable overlaps where good leaders can drive people. They can keep pushing them neatly along that line. I can imagine there was a soldier saying, well, if my officer says we need to do this, we probably need to do it because he wouldn't lie to me. He looks after me. He looks out for me. It is this insidious nature of this. And 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 I, I, I hope people are reflecting while we're at the one extreme this is an organization's culture and goals being abused and misaligned i wonder if we 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 sort of take this now in a slightly different direction so we we've thank you waitman by the way that that's such a good and broad view of something that people boil down to some people did some very bad things which shows that it's much wider but looking now to the modern day um, I, we've, the listeners know, I was very briefly in the Navy, and even in my very, very brief career in the Navy, the one of the first things that we talked about in the first couple of months at Dartmouth Naval College was le- the legality of orders and a concept of morality and ethics. Even at that stage, while it was very lightweight, it was still there. Um, Waitman, I know that that 
you, I believe you're still working with the US military to talk about this. Can you talk about how some of these ideas and lessons are actually reflected today in the military? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I was really lucky that early on, I, I worked with the Holocaust Museum in DC and with a, a law professor uh, named Jody Prescott at Vermont. And, and we looked at how we might take some of these case studies from my, my study of the German military in, in Belarus to teach cadets, essentially. So, But it has been expanded. It, it's sometimes used to teach uh, more senior NCOs as well as senior leaders about military ethics and more, more importantly about sort of ethical decision-making as, as a military leader. You know, one of the things that I think people are often surprised, and maybe even the cadets themselves are sometimes surprised, is that when you look at, for example, one of the one of the case studies that we use is of this one battalion on the Eastern Front, where essentially the battalion commander orders the three companies to go murder all the Jews in their respective AOs. And one commander says, he's, you know, absolutely, we'll do it, no problem. He does it. The second commander sort of hems and haws and I don't know, and can I get that in writing and da-da-da-da-da-da, and he does it. And the third commander says, no, I'm not going to do it. And no matter what the battalion commander says, he doesn't do it. And so there's actually a a court case about the second company, about the commander who ultimately did it, but sort of hemmed and hawed. And what you see in that example is you have things like, you know, you have like a first sergeant who is super excited about being a first sergeant. That's all he wanted to be. And he takes all kinds of initiative and says, don't worry about it, sir. I'll handle this. You sit in the command post. I'll go out and make sure this killing takes place, right? And you have things like sergeants who are saying to officers, you know, like, I got this, sir. This is NCO business. I can handle this, right? And and so what I discovered, and what's nice about this case study, which has been adopted by the, the U.S. Army's Reserve Officer Training um, Program, so for all the officers that are commissioning not out of the academies, is that really it, it avoids the, well, I'm not a Nazi excuse. If the case study had been somewhat at Auschwitz, you know, that is that is extreme, right? And and that's not something most people can relate to. But when I was writing this book, I recognized people that I'd met in my military career in these German units, right? Now, not that they were genocidal, but these archetypes, right? Of like the go-getter first sergeant who like takes initiative that maybe would be better left, you know, decision better left to an officer, or you know, the as I mentioned to Gareth earlier, like the soldiers who sort of make themselves scarce or conversely, and this is another example of that sort of photo negative, you know, one of the burdens of being competent in the military is that quite often you get asked to do more stuff because the leadership knows you're competent, right? So you always have that, like that sergeant who you know is going to handle it. So if you have to do something difficult at a short notice, you're like, tell Sergeant so-and-so to do it, which oftentimes is not so great for him because he get he always going to get that. And, and, you know, it takes the sort of dedicated leader to intentionally assign difficult tasks to people that might not be as able to do them in order to develop those people, right? But in the instance we're talking about, that sergeant who you you would assign to do things as competent is competent at killing, right? So that's why you assign that guy, because you know he's going to do it. The case study av- avoids anybody being able to say, this is ridiculous. This has no bearing on me. I'm not a Nazi. Because this is relevant. This is this these dynamics in, in these small units are, are essentially the same and probably have been for, you know, thousands of years. And so the goal of the conversation is to have people think about 
how do you make moral decisions? What are the what are the things that you weigh when you're deciding if an order is is moral, immoral? I will say that one of the things that I'm happiest about with regard to this program is that it always goes, or at least it did, it always went to Iraq. It always went to Afghanistan. And I never brought it that way. I never I never drove it in that direction, right? It was this wasn't a, you know, now think about the 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 crimes that, that we have committed in Iraq and Afghanistan because there are military units in the US Army that did commit war crimes. But it always goes there, right? Which which to me shows that the cadets they're they're drawing those connections themselves. Dysfunctional unit climates and cultures lead to criminal behavior or can. I think this is so important because bad things happen in teams. Yeah. People do the wrong things and and often it's trivial. It can be trivial and it starts trivial and it gets worse and we we you know we see this you know the 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 Russell Brand is in the news at the moment. And you you can go back and you can see some of these behaviors that whether they were criminal or otherwise, I don't know, and I can't comment upon. But you look at these behaviors and say, everyone around you is normalizing these behaviors. How could that possibly be? This person who normalized behavior is a good family person. Why on earth are they joking about it? And so I I th- this really was the heart of why I wanted to have this conversation because it it this is all of us. I think your your reference to sort of this this real world ethical, how would you deal with this? Um, the fact that you can take it away from Nazi Germany and hardened Nazis, and yet people can see themselves in it and people can start to apply that, I think is is really important. On the positive side, you know, is, is that one of the things that, and Gareth, I'm sure knows this, you know, soldiers do what leaders check, whether it's ridiculous or not. You know, you know that if the sergeant major doesn't want you to walk on the grass, you don't walk on the grass. You know that if the sergeant major wants all the Humvee tires to be shined on Friday afternoon, they're going to be shined, right? And so, you know, one of the things that that has been in the news in the American military, you know, is, oh, gosh, you know, our military is so woke and we're so sort of, we're not going to be able to win a war because we're having diversity and tolerance training, uh, which is obviously absurd. Right. But it also from a positive side, again, that's leaders saying these are values and behaviors that we value and that we want to see exhibited in our units, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about. For me, this this whole discussion has has enlightened me, certainly, you know, my my ignorance of, of the Holocaust. And it's reaffirmed, I think, a suspicion I had, which was, you know, this is the, all of these things. And, and the Holocaust is clearly the most extreme it ever gets to. But these things are, they're spectrums of behaviour that if they're unchecked, compound and create worse and worse cultures, worse and worse situations, and, and, and they create the conditions for which individuals can start to either wantonly behave badly or excuse bad behaviour because of what's going on around them. And and I think that final point there is, is absolutely bang on the little things that you walk past and we said this in the last podcast the things that you walk past are the things that you accept and and what i really like about this discussion at the moment because the uk military is going through the same thing um as are the australians as are many of our allies and and anybody that says oh well it wasn't like that in my day and this you know 
it, it erodes our ability to fight and it's all woke and they're missing the point. This is not about we're going to be a non-violent military. This is about changing those subtle little small behaviours that we've accepted in the past to make us a better, more cohesive fighting unit and to check the bad behaviours that over time compound that you can easily brush off and say, well, this is just locker room banter or this is the the dark humour that soldiers need to be able to do bad things. These are all excuses we make and actually we know that if you concentrate on doing the task and achieving the goal, it's the little things that make the team work. And I, I think this this whole episode for me has has made me recognise you more so than than I had perhaps realised the the concept that leaders at the top of any organisation can't change behaviour overnight. You can't bring out new rules. You can't suddenly decide that you're going to change the culture of an organization but by doing the small things by checking the small things by making it very clear what you're what you care about and then living and breathing and embodying that you do have that top-down trickle-down effect that very very quickly changes behaviors and i've said it before in a couple of episodes Leaders in, in all organisations, whether they're business managers, whether they're generals, whether they're senior influencers in society, you know, they think they can change more than they actually can by imposing new rules and setting new conditions. And they don't necessarily recognise how much they can change by behaving in a different way. And, and the, the small things you do compound over time to either create brilliant brilliant results that meet awesome objectives or as we've learned today to create some pretty bad compounding effects that have equally awesome size scale effects but that are abhorrent and terrible and should never be repeated now just to follow back follow up on that i mean i think one of the things that's really interesting of course is that you know, I have this conversation with cadets sometimes when we talk about the law of war, right? And the law of armed conflict. And, you know, why would we abide by it if the other side isn't? The other, the bad guys aren't, say it's, say it's Ukraine, for example, or whatever. You know, the the, the bad guys, the, the enemy is not doing this. They're, they are acting awfully. They're, they're mistreating civilians. They're mistreating prisoners, et cetera. Why are we doing that? And of course, you have the, the sort of cynical, pragmatic, instrumental answer, which is, you know, if we if we treat them better, they'll be more likely to surrender, which makes our lives easier. But I think it's also important, and I think this actually, and again, I I, I think Chris is being too hard on himself because I think it's it absolutely is possible to 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 draw these lessons and conclusions for all kinds of institutions and organizations. You know, with without saying without demeaning the Holocaust, because the other reason that we do these things, at least, and this is this is as idealistic as you will find a very cynical Waitman to be. But the reason that we abide by the law of war, the reason that we don't generally mistreat civilians, um, and which is not to say the American military is blameless or that they haven't in the past done that and not, not lived up to this, but the reason that we strive to do that is not for anybody but us, yeah. right? It, it's, it's, so that, it's so that you can go home with your head high knowing that you didn't debase yourself 
to the extent that anyone who, who's been in combat can, can do that, right? And, and also so that you send home soldiers who haven't been morally compromised, you know, into killers of children and, and, and civilians, right? So, I mean, and again, that, that is very sort of high and mighty and lofty, but I think that's that's part of it, right? And it's the same thing with with organizations, right? You know, if if you have a, a code of ethics in your organization, do you abide by it to prevent litigation or do you abide by it because that's the kind of organization that you want your people to be a part of? You know, that's part of it. Um, and of course, what you see with the Nazis is some of many of these organizations go the other direction with it and they throw those rules out. But also, and I wanted to highlight this as well, that you have people who insulate themselves from the moral questions because they're just doing what they've always done, just in a different direction. There are there were plenty of career economists who participated in that hunger plan and agronomists, and the people who had been trained before the war and their expertise and experience was in regular old economy, economics, agronomy, economic planning, et cetera. And they just shifted over into doing it for for the purposes of starving 30 to 40 million people, just like the people that, uh, you know, Topfin Sons, the company that built the crematorias for many of the concentration camps, as well as for Auschwitz, they were a crematoria company before the war. They built crematorias for funeral homes and for slaughterhouses. But when they became providers to the Nazis, you know, they adapted to what their client wanted in some pretty awful ways. Um, and, you know, I would argue that perhaps one of the ways they're able to do that is they're able to say, look, we're still just building crematorias. That's all we do. We're just building crematorias. We're not we're not using them. You know, we're not responsible for who's using them. We're just doing what we've always done. Just like the guy who does the the railway timetables, you know, now some of the trains are going to Auschwitz, but I've always done railway timetables, and that's all I'm doing. And I'm not I don't I don't have to deal with the the moral questions of my responsibilities, my job. Because I'm just doing my job the same way I always did. I really, really want to thank you, Waitman. This is such an important conversation and such a brilliantly exposed piece of history. Thank you so much for coming to talk about this as well. I hope people have found education, learned stuff that perhaps they didn't know, but also, as I think we've tried to do, reflected on that and connected it to the broader world. And, and for me personally, that piece at the end about why do we hold ourselves to these standards? We don't hold ourselves to these standards for the other people. We hold ourselves to these standards because these are the standards we choose to hold. And that says who we are as human beings. There is so much sort of, well, what about the other people going on in our world today? When actually the statement that says, I, I stand by these things, this is what I believe, this says who I am, I think is really important. Gareth, I'm, I'm not allowed to steal your last words from you. I've said what I wanted to say, I think, already, other than to echo your your comments about Waitman's very insightful, sensitive and fascinating synopsis of what is a very difficult part of human history. So thank you ever so much. So I'm hoping people who have listened to this realise there's there's a broader story to tell. You've written a number of books. Wayman, can you remind us the titles of the books, how people get hold of them, and perhaps a little bit of an advert for what you're working on right now in terms of books? And I know there's a, there's a new uh, project you've been working on online. So perhaps you could tell us a bit more about where people can learn more. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned already the the first book um, is called Marching into Darkness, the, Holo- the Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus. And it is it is essentially looking at a series of small units in the German army, not the SS, who were involved in atrocities in roughly the same time period and roughly the same geographic location and looking at, you know, the ways in which that happened, why they did it, but also those people that refused and the ways that it sort of expanded into things like sexual violence and looting, et cetera, et cetera. And that's available, you know, Amazon, your your local bookseller. Um, likewise, the second book is called The Holocaust Eastern Europe at the Epicenter of the Final Solution. It's a much more general piece, but it focuses solely on Eastern Europe. And many things that I've talked about today, if you're interested in sort of learning more, it's, it's written very much for a sort of general audience. It's not meant to be read by one grad student in the library. Um, that's available from Bloomsbury or from uh, Amazon or wherever you, you get your books. Uh, there's actually a second edition of that in the works, which has two additional chapters. One is on other victim groups and the other is on sources and methods of, of how we study the Holocaust. And then my most recent book is coming out in the spring summer of next year uh, from the University of Nebraska Press. And it's called Between the Wires, the Yanovska Camp and the Holocaust in Lviv. And it is about this really, really important but uh, almost unknown camp in Lviv in Ukraine where perhaps between as many as 40,000 or 80, 000, to 80,000 predominantly Jews are murdered. Um, but it's a really, really interesting story. It has some really intriguing elements, one of which is that there was a revolt and an escape uh, from the camp in 1943, uh, where the prisoners rose up and and um, killed their guards. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. So I can't wait to see it myself coming out. And uh, there's a project, just as a very, very brief um, mention, I'm currently on research leave, uh, fortunately, for two years uh, to work on a digital reconstruction of the Inosca camp. So we're taking contemporary documents, photographs, drawings by prisoners, textual descriptions, and I'm working with an architect and I'm working with a 3D designer to build a, to reconstruct this as a 3D environment um, that will then have a public facing educational website that you can use to sort of navigate through this site because it doesn't exist physically anymore. That's what I'm up to when I'm not on podcasts. Uh, Wayman, thank you so much. You know, the end of podcast spiel, you know how to get hold of us, battling with biz with a Z or on Twitter, battling with business with an S at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. Um, you know, I heard something on another podcast recently. If you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Who knew what a simple thing to yeah. say? Thank you for coming. Waitman, thank you very, very much for coming and talk to us. We'll see you on the next episode of Battling With Business. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.